It's great to be here again and uh, see faces old and new. And uh, so I'm just going to share a little bit. I was asked to speak on apostolic mission. And um, if you know what it is, you can tell me afterwards. But uh, I I know what it means, really. Um, It means a number of things, but there's there's only one thing that I want to focus on. And I would say, what makes apostolic apostles are people who can catch churches and individuals up on God's mission. That's what apostolic mission is. It's, it's the apostolic gift. Jesus, the risen Jesus gave gifts to men, some to be apostles. It is, it is an office. It is a... It is a ministry, it is a gift that Jesus has given to the church for apostolic ministry. An apostolic ministry, apostolic mission, catches people up in God's mission. And God's mission is this, that the gospel be preached in every nation under heaven and in the earth. It's a world mission. And so to, get, to be a church that's apostolic, an apostolic church, sometimes we use that term, is, is a church that's got caught up in God's world mission. God is on mission to the whole world. And he has from the beginning, through Abraham, he said, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So, um, and I, I, one of the reasons, really, that I'm preaching on this is because I was asked to, but actually it's a passion of mine, is that as a church, in a rural setting, you know, kind of quite, Uh, you know, caught up in little communities. Um, It's really important that from that place we engage in God's heart and mission to reach every nation under heaven because it stops us being small-minded and it increases. And so to hear Jill pray like that and think, here we are in the middle of Matlock praying for Syria and the Middle East and the Gulf is absolutely apostolic. And, um, and so I thank people like David Devonish and Andy Martin and, and Terry Virgo and other guys who've led the way in New Frontiers now is about 1,500 churches across many, many, many nations. And um, you can't be a church without talking about the grace of God because it's the gospel, isn't it? It was the goodness and the favor of God that saved us. But <laughs> there's a big difference between talking about grace and living grace. And what we find in many of the churches in the Middle East and in the places we are is there's not much grace in practice. There's the talk, you know, we're saved by grace. It's so biblical, you can't avoid it. But what does that look like? What does it feel like? What does it mean to live in a church that isn't governed by rules and expectations that are all based on on, uh, on dutiful obedience. What does it look like to really love one another? What does it look like to be an apostolic people? And so, so I, I just want to very briefly try and help you engage with this worldview. Actually, if I've got a goal, it's to help your worldview be a biblical worldview, which is the church is called to world mission and nothing less. That's God's mission. And uh, I'll deliberately push it that way because you don't need me to appeal to your heart to see God move in Matlock or Bakewell or wherever you're from because that's close to home. 
But um, God is uh, on the move. Chris Wright, in his book, The Mission of God, says this, Mission begins in Jerusalem and ends in Rome. From the heart of the faith of Israel, the temple, to the heart of the world of all the nations. And that's, you know, that's just in a short few decades we move from uh, the church being birthed in Jerusalem to Rome. And, uh, and I, I, I don't know if you... I, it's a bit of a revelation to me, to be honest. Uh, we're going to look at it in a moment. But I, I've always thought of... Um, yeah, the church started with Jews in Jerusalem. And then Peter went and preached in Cornelius' house. And suddenly we get the breaking of the gospel to the Gentiles. And then Paul comes forth and he takes it into Turkey and, and to Rome and... He'd love to have been going to Spain. He's, he's just caught apostolic mission into the very fiber of his being. He's on the move all the time to take the gospel to every nation. And, um, uh, but I, what I hadn't really twigged, and it's pretty obvious, so it's me that's a bit on the slow on the uptake, but the church when it was birthed, New Testament church, which was birthed in Acts 2 when the Spirit came at Pentecost, didn't start as a monocultural church of just local believers, Jewish believers. The church started as a complete, international, multicultural, multilingual church. The, the destiny was in the beginning, not just at the end. We think of it, you know, well, before the throne of God, there'll be every tongue, every tribe, every nation will be worshipping God. In Revelation chapter 7, you can read about that. And, and that's the end. But when we go to the beginning, it shouldn't surprise, because Jesus said, look, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. And when the Spirit comes on you, he says, you'll be my witnesses in Judea, Jerusalem, Jerusalem Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. The, 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 the theme, the gospel must be preached in every nation before the end comes. Matthew 13, Mark 13. It must be preached. It must be proclaimed. And actually, the church starts as a multicultural church. Could we just have the reading for today, Georgia, uh, from Acts chapter 2, verse 5 to 11? And there was dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Do you realize that? <laughs> every nation that was known in the world at that time was present on the day of Pentecost. And uh, so, from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, at the sound this was the, the Spirit of God coming like a mighty wind on the disciples. Uh, at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered. And because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, I'm not all those who are speaking Galileans, how is it we hear each of us in his own language? Perhaps Parthians and Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues, the mighty works of God. 
I'm counting as I read those out, 15 different people groups were represented there. There's a map, if we could have the map, um, then it just shows that the known world at the time of, uh, of, of Jesus' resurrection, and um, there were two empires. There was the Roman Empire, which was uh, ruling Israel and everything west, and there was the Parthian Empire, which was based in Iran. And um, these two empires fought each other. Uh, there are supposed to be two colours there, but the green bit is the Roman Empire, and the bits to the right that look white, um, Media, Parthia, Mesopotamia, that was, that was the known world, those two empires. And the boundary line between them would shift as battles were fought and victories won and lost. But from every part of those empires, people were present under the will of God on a day when the Spirit of God fell and the New Testament church was birthed. And, uh, and this was a declaration. This was a declaration that God will reach every, every language, every tongue, every people group. The church didn't start as monocultural, all-white in Matlock. <laughs> it started as multicultural, multilingual, uh, multinational from every nation it says every nation under heaven was in Jerusalem at this time and that's the representation and Cyrene for example is on North Africa there Uh, people come I mean there were Jews dispersed all over this area and they came together and uh, you can imagine, so the re- when you read the rest of Acts and about how the, you know, there was, no one was in need and, and uh, you know, they opened their homes and they ate in one another's homes, just actually you've got to translate that in, oh, 3,000 of these visitors, well, some of the locals, but many of the visitors got saved on the first day on Pentecost, didn't they? Peter preached, 3,000 saved. That come from all over the place. This isn't a, Jew, this isn't a Jerusalem church. It's a church based in Jerusalem that's gathered all these people and suddenly they know Jesus. And the only place that would hold 3,000 people was the temple courts, was Solomon's temple courts. So they were going up to the temple and, and there the pre, Peter and, Paul and John are preaching. These people need looking after. Talk about hospitality stretch. Suddenly, who's going to feed them? They were going to go back then after a week. And now they're staying on. They... They've, they've met Jesus, this community, this fellowship emerging here. Who's going to feed them? Hey, we, we need to sell some in here so we can provide for them. It just helps you read Acts when you think, even the passage in Acts 2.42, you know, they devoted themselves. These are new believers from every different language group. And um, so there must have been a, a bit like when we go, <laughs> English is amazing. To be able to speak English is amazing in the modern world. It's like Greek was at that time. Greek was the international language. You spoke Greek, you could communicate wherever you went. It's the same with English. Wherever you go, you can, you can communicate. Uh, it's an amazing privilege. We don't, <laughs> we're not very good at languages, but then we don't have to be, do we? Because <laughs> everybody speaks ours. So, um, but, so there must have been language issues. There must have been hospitality issues. There were issues of feeding. The church had to be the church. 
And when the Spirit of God comes, it wasn't just saved. I think it must have been so demonstrated what the church, what did grace look like in practice right here in this place. Um, and then you get this thing where the, 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 <laughs> the, the apostles, the twelve, they, they, they start speaking for them what, a, a language that they didn't learn, which all of these 15 nations present say, hey, they're praising God in our language. How does that, what's that about? What is that about? What's the significance of that? It's a hugely prophetic moment. Because when language got separated, happened at the built when, when, when the Tower of Babel was being built. And all these different nations saying, we can build a tower right up to heaven. We can be like God. And God could see that this was dangerous. He said, if we just let them carry on building this, they'll be like us. So, hey, I'm going to send, I'm going to disperse them. I'll give them all languages you can't communicate properly. It's a massive issue not being able to communicate properly. And, uh, and you see, this is a prophetic moment because tongues... If that was a song, I was stood next to this man and he, I knew he's singing in tongues. I haven't a clue what he's saying. Um, um, and, um, but Neil could hear him too. So he brings an interpretation. It's not a translation. These guys, this tongue wasn't like that tongue because someone heard it and understood. The Galilean fishermen are speaking out and somebody from Mesopotamia or Cyrene says, hey, that's in my language. And they're praising God. How does that work? What's that about? Well, you see, God is bringing what was dispersed together in his church. You can speak many languages, but you're one people, one body, one baptism, one Father, one Lord of all. There is a statement of something that God is unifying again that he had separated. And that's what the church is. It's a rich, rich thing. So it's a massive thing going on here that is speaking not just into that moment, but down through history as it is to come forth, that my church, says Jesus, that I will build, will be a multicultural, multilingual, multinational church, wherever it is. So when the Syrian refugees arrive in Matlock, which I hear 10 families have been allocated, what do you think is be the first thing that they need? What, what could you do to serve them? And one suggestion I would have is if you've got any qualification in teaching English as a foreign language would you please help these Arabic speakers how to communicate into your, this culture they're going to feel incredibly uh, out at sea and, 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 and the language will mean they can't talk they, they speak, if they're, unless they're from Turkomans from the north of Syria and speak Turkish as the ones we met in, in Yalavawar they're, they're going to be speaking Arabic now, if you speak Arabic, brilliant. But I don't think many, anybody speak any Arabic. You speak a bit of Arabic, don't you? Enough to say hello, how are you? Well, that would be a good start. But maybe we could do something on teaching English. Help them. Start a little thing in your new building. Something like that. I'm just, but it's just because God wants to join things together. And... Uh, it's exciting, isn't it? <laughs> and uh, so, so it starts in Jerusalem, and we tend to 
you know, and chapter 1 to 6 in the book of Acts is all about what God's doing in Jerusalem. They're coming, they're coming, they're coming. From 6 to 12, this is before Paul goes off on mission, there's actually mission going on all over the, the, the country of Judea, Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. You know, Philip goes to Samaria in cha- chapter 7, doesn't he? He's off. And uh, if you, let me just read you a couple of bits. You, you have to understand, and I, again, I've missed all this, so I have to say, I only, um, where have I got it? Some verses on the 9. Chapter 9, verse 31. I mean, think of Peter. He's not in Jerusalem, actually, is he? 6 to 12. He's, he's in, he's, 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 Jopper, isn't it? He's in the, the tailor's house, and he's he's obviously over near the coast. But uh, missions going on; it's spreading out of Jerusalem very quickly. Uh, so nine thirty one says, so the church throughout Judea and Galilee and Samaria. Oh, it's already in all those places. The church is already spread, had peace, and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Hallelujah. So this is our strategy for the Islamic world. Decided in Istanbul a couple of weeks ago is we are going to multiply what we're doing manyfold, because multiplication is how mission advances. So let's plant many churches across Turkey, in particular, which was the focus, but not just Turkey. Look at eleven nineteen twenty one. Um, now there were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen. They travelled as far as... Okay, so the Gospel's going up. Phoenicia, if you know where that is, Lebanese coast. Uh, Cyprus, so the Gospel got to Cyprus before Paul ever went there. Antioch, so the church in Antioch had already been planted before we hear about Barnabas going to get Paul and starting the work there. Uh, And spreading the the word to no one except Jews. And, um, and so it goes on. If you read around, you'll find there was churches in places like Gaza, uh, down the, the coast, into Tarsus, um, Damascus. You know, why did Paul go to Damascus to kill the church if there wasn't a church there? Because there was a church there. It already... So I'm just... There was a dynamic that I think we don't always see. The church spread so quickly and it was fulfilling the mandate. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. Paul comes along, chapter 13, and the thing explodes into the Gentile world in a, in a completely new way. And so we know Paul, in 20 years, takes the gospel right around that whole part of the world. In fact, um, I just want to finish with this. Paul, in the end of Romans... He's, um, he's been through Turkey twice, three times, three times. Um, first time he's up into Galatia. If you want to understand a connection between a church plant and something else apostles do, which is make sure doctrine is sound, read Uh, chapter 13 of Acts the story of how the church gets planted in Antioch and Derbe and Lystra this is all that's Galatia and the letter to the Galatians which is to these four churches he planted in the heart of and he wrote it a year later and he's tackling you started in grace why have you lost it 
It's, it's his first doctrinal letter to the churches he planted is the letter to the Galatians. So just read it. Try to read it through the eyes of what happened there. Well, someone came in and tried to, tried to twist the gospel around and make it, oh, but you've got to do this and you've got to do that and you should be that and you shouldn't be there and you should be doing this and blah, blah, blah. And suddenly they, get, they find, you know, like Islam, it just squeezes people into a mold that is so rigid that it's a total control mechanism. Uh, and that's what's hap- beginning to happen. And so he writes this letter. You began so well. Who's bewitched you? Let them be castrated. That's what he says, you know. He's so out. The grace has to be fought for. And sometimes aggressively in his language. You know, well, you're weak when you're away. But oh, when I come, I'll come in the power of God, he says. You know, to the Corinthians. There's something of an apostolic dynamic to protect the doctrine of grace the place of fellowship and family in church and the, and the mission to go and keep going and keep going and keep going. Are you I'm making any, are you with me? Anybody with me? <laughs> I'm just, I want us to catch a worldview, a biblical worldview. I brought a tome with me. I'm only going to, the mission of God, uh, I'm not showing off, but it's a bit heavy going. But it, it's brilliant because... This guy, who's probably one of our best-known British theologians, Chris Wright, he said, we, what about if we read the Bible, the whole Bible, with a pair of lenses on that said mission? What would it look like? And it hadn't happened. People read it from salvation and, you know, the, the promises to Israel or whatever, but read it with a mission focus. And, and, and he's, it's quite thick. There's a lot to say. <laughs> and, and, it's, and, and it's totally persuasive. And uh, you get to the end. Uh, the epilogue. All missions. All mission. All missions. Which we initiate. Or into which we invest our own vocation. Which you invest your money in Yalava, for example, or India, or Oman. They flow from the prior and larger reality of the mission of God. God is on mission, and we, in that wonderful phrase of Paul, are co workers with God. And. Uh, <laughs> And then he talks about worldview. How do we, how do we see? Do we, do, we, do we see things through the eyes of God's mission? And uh, he finishes with this. He, well, I will finish with this. This worldview, constituted by putting the mission of God at the very center of all existence, is disturbingly subversive. And it uncomfortably relativizes one's own place in the great scheme of things. It's certainly a very healthy corrective to the egocentric obsession of much Western culture, including, sadly, even Western Christian culture. It constantly forces us to open our eyes to the big picture rather than shelter in the cosy narcissism of our own small worlds. That's not a dig. It's just a challenge, a very real challenge that we line up and pray the sort of prayers Jill has encouraged us to pray so for application I want to just mention three things 
What does it mean to us practically? Well, the first one... Um, I've already stated that. I mean, I think for it to become our worldview, our biblical worldview of this is what we're caught, this is what apostolic mission is, is to be caught up on God's mission, and it's a worldwide mission, is a way of thinking. It's a way, it's a, it's a, it's a way we process life. It's, it's, it's allowing God to speak into our priorities and our goals and our perspectives in such a way that this mission takes precedence over our own just personal desires. And that's, there's a surrender factor in following God. Um, that lady who was up there that Jill mentioned, who, um, who's following Jesus in the country that we're in, um, is, uh, she's had to surrender a lot. But then anyone following Jesus in the Middle East is surrendered a lot. And they get a massive reward. They get the presence of Jesus in such an intimate and personal way. They get dreams, they get visions, they get protection, they get comfort, they get encouragement, they get friendship and fellowship with believers. And um, you can't wipe the smile off her face. Um, so I would say... I'm, this is a challenge. Get, you know, it's a prayer. I want to get caught up in your mission, Lord. I mean, that's what it means to engage with this. Is something in you responds and makes us say, "I want to engage with this." I don't know what it will mean for me, but I want to engage. I don't want to live in a cozy, protected world. I, whatever you want to say, God, say it. You haven't got long to live. Make the most of it. <laughs> hey, just what do you want? It doesn't mean you have to go, but it. it you know, because the second thing you can do is, if, as we engage, there's things we can do. That doesn't mean we have to go, though it may mean we have to go. We can pray, as we've said. I mean, we cannot overstate the value of prayer in seeing the breakthroughs. You know, Jesus will return when every nation and every tribe has heard the gospel. We've got quite a lot of work to do. The 31 people groups in Oman alone speak in different languages. Some of them have never heard the gospel. And they won't even hear it through the web because it's not even in their language yet. But people are working towards that. And it's brilliant what can be done now through the web to get into places that it's hard to get into. But there are no closed nations under God because everyone belongs to God and everywhere belongs to God. So we can't use clothes now. We can't go there. Yes, we can. You can go anywhere in Jesus' name. So I would encourage you, please, pray. Pray for the things... I was talking to one guy, all his kids are getting caught up in mission, and he said, we chose a nation that we would pray about every day, just short term, as a family. And we read the Joshua Project or Operation World, found out more, or we could about that country. We just prayed for that country. We asked God to give us a country, put it on our heart. We, as a family, involve the children praying for a nation that God would put on your heart. Read up and get a bit of information so you know what to pray about. And that's why we sent you the newsletters, to give you some things to pray about that will make a difference. And we do appreciate those prayers massively. And thank you for an amazing sense of support while we've been there. We do appreciate it. Um, finance, I mean, we're already practicing that um, with Yalava. I'd encourage you to continue that. When I look down the, the line of giving, the in column, if you like, 
Church in the Peak, 1500. Buxton Church in the Peak did a one-off gift at Christmas. I better not say what it was, a good sum of money. And then here again, Church in the Peak, 1500. German churches, other, other churches. Uh, Brooklyn Tabernacle from you brought a team of doctors while we're there. And, and there's a church in Vancouver now giving money in. I mean, it's just, it, it's an international feel. You think well, there's some people caught in the sense of mission here. We need to be in absolute integrity handling this money, which it is. I'm so, I can be absolutely assure you it's been well managed and with great integrity, right, Andy Ball? Um, so, support. Um, and if the bank had come up, the third and final thing is this God might be calling you to nations. Yeah, please, band just come up. Uh, we're going to sing a song and then I'm going to ask anyone who senses God. You know, when you get a call to a nation, it makes just a sense. You may have a particular nation that God's put on your heart. But very often people don't have a specific. You don't need a specific. You just need to get that sense of, oh, you know, I'm, I, I'm called to the nations. I just know somewhere in me I'm called to go. I'm called to go. Or I might be called to go. I don't, want to put, I don't want to put weight on this. I don't want to put it as a commitment. I, I just feel there are people here, and you know who you are. There's something in you would love to get caught up in God's mission, not just by praying, not just by support, not by worldview, but actually being willing to go. And I feel that there would be value in praying for you, that God will lead you, direct you, show you the way, we want to provide every way we can to help you. So we're going to start a summer school of mission um, as part of this Islamic world thing, which we'll probably be doing in Istanbul or Yalava in the summer, two weeks. Come and meet people on the ground. Come and get some teaching training on doing mission. Get, get experience, a short-term visit into one of the local churches. Go prayer walking. Meet other people like you. Probably only be 20, 25 people that sort of scale, but hopefully we'll get it off the ground for this summer, the summer school of mission. So there, and there's going to be a Middle Eastern Bible school we're starting as well, so that we can look at the Bible from an Eastern perspective uh, rather than the Western perspective, which most theological books do, and miss some very important. It's just a different perspective. So that would be exciting with Andy McCulloch, if you know him, amazing brain on him. Um, but uh, so w- there's things going to happen that will help people particularly if you think in Islamic world, but I'm, it, I'm not, you know, wherever, if you're sensing a call wherever in the world, it's not a commitment, it's just a prayer. And we're going to sing this song, and as we sing it, come forward and then, uh, I've overrun a bit, I apologise, but you can close it down whenever you think. Um, but if you, during this song or at the end of it, just come forward and we'd love to pray with you. Thanks for listening. Uh, you're very attentive, thanks.